Yeah, they had us the first half, I'm not gonna lie. They had us. We weren't defeated, but they had us. But it took guts, it took an attitude. That's all it takes. That's all it takes to be successful is an attitude. And that's what our coach told us. He said, it's the reason. Hello, hello. You are listening to the Off Court Podcast. Well, we are recording this the day after the playoffs started in earnest. And uh, with the exception of the Bucks winning, it was actually like a pretty good suite of games. Blazers yeah. Nuggets makes me sad because I'm rooting for both of them, but Mavs beating the Clippers. Uh, that is a very based uh, win. I'm, I am I was going to bet on that game too, but I got scared out of betting when I lost my money betting against the Celtics, hoping the Wizards would upset them. Um, so I'm, I'm that kind of a better. I'm very like manic Jewish about it, where it's like, oh, it didn't work out the first time. I'm I'm done with you're it. Actually, uh, and Adam I'm, Sandler on Ted Gems. I'm, I'm or like I'm like I have the same manic uh, energy as him, but then I don't make the irrational decisions. I just do one crazy one and then I never do it again. But um, yeah, thank you, Mavs, for exposing the Clippers. I, I didn't win anything in that matchup, so I didn't have any stake in the game. But we, me and Abdul and all of Toronto, have a lot of emotional stake in that game and watching Kawhi continuously question his decision in uh, leaving a three-peat in Toronto. If he, uh, if he opts out of free agency this year, Kawhi, <laughs> you know, Kawhi and Dine is still open for you, baby. Come on. Kawhi not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's really good, actually. <laughs> um, if, he, if he does opt out of free agency, that should become a thing. I actually hate that because uh, we're going to be so thirsty online as, fa- as fans. Oh, it's going to bring out the worst He's in us gonna again. He's going to go to the fucking Lakers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just switch fucking team. Oh, my God. He would be the most villainous uh, player at that point. This week, we are going to be covering a lot, but still not enough. Quick caveat. Listen, we are doing our best here. We are we are trying to adopt all the proper language. This is an episode about the Paralympics and Special Olympics with an emphasis on the Special Olympics. We know there's uh, the Tristone Games, Global Games, Union for Athletes with Down Syndrome, uh, there's a lot, and each of those could be its own episode, so we're just not going to touch those. It's it's just, it's too much. It's too much for an hour and, like, change. There's also, uh, from what I've seen since I, I know you'll get into this, Abdul, with how um, sort of narrow your research had to be with what's available online, but there's a lot of, like, features online about, like, great stories and, like, how inspiring the Special Olympics is and and you can find those very easily. TED Talks from Special Olympics athletes. I, I believe we're not really going to get into those stories specifically as much as what we usually do on this podcast, which is look at the sort of political economy and sort of cultural effect of an organization like the Special Olympics. Pretty much. Like, we're not going to be getting into any of the schmaltzy bullshit that surrounds either of these games. I will also say this was probably we're recording this like a month and a half after we recorded our last episode, mainly because I cannot describe how difficult this episode was to research because there's no consolidated place for criticism of the Special Olympics or Paralympics. And they're not the same thing. Uh, And it's just like it's really hard to go through like a bunch of academic articles that get into like one subset. Like that's how broad the topic is. And there is Mm -hmm. no like... There's no, like, book or two that unifies it at all, which is what I usually do for the show is, like, a ah, book or two and then, like, a journal article expanding on something interesting I found, right? Uh, this was all journals with some, like, you know, bonus uh, history thrown in that I could, like, dig up or whatever. But, like, nothing that's, like, actually, like, the scandal at the games or whatever. 
it both explains how underserviced and uh, underlooked this like in popular yes. discourse the idea of the special olympics or paralympics are no for sure i mean and kind of to uh the you, you know how you didn't mince words there like, most of us don't know that much about the special olympics because from what i understand it's only covered in this like schmaltzy bullshit like like feel good story like the blind side kind of style yeah it's like it's inspiration porn and also like we're not going to be talking about the paralympics from perspective of mm-hmm. physical disability only intellectual disability physical disability like i'm actually of the opinion that the paralympics handles it quite well uh, all things considered uh, obviously the olympics are bad should be abolished blah 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 but like in the context of uh, how they set up their categorization system, uh, the Lexi system, as far as I understand it, is actually really good. I know one of our listeners, Nate Bragg, is a wheelchair Paralympian, I believe. Let me just double check that. Yeah, he's the communications guy at uh, BC Wheelchair Sports and a freelance writer with an emphasis on parasport. Yeah, uh, and like, I would love to hear your thoughts, Nate, on paralympics and and physical disability and stuff like that uh whether or not it's good like coming from the outside it seems pretty it seems pretty okay i don't know i might be wrong um i'll sort of get into it historically the first uh, instance of a sports practice for people with intellectual disabilities from an association level was organized in this fucked me up in 1946 by the Kennedy family when it set up the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Foundation in memory of their son killed during World War II uh, and dedicated to helping people. Uh, Also, one note, I will be using the Arsler when I'm quoting directly because I think it it really, we should not blunt the impact of uh, the way intellectually disabled people have been infantilized basically up until the early 2000s. It set up the foundation memory of their son killed during World War II and dedicating to helping people considered as, quote, mentally retarded, unquote. In 1962, Eunice Kennedy, the matriarch of the Kennedy family, who is not talked about enough for being an evil sack of shit, um, explained that the orientation (laughs) of the family foundation towards intellectual disability was connected with the situation of Rosemary Kennedy, her sister, uh, Rosemary, who was presented as quote-unquote mentally retarded, accompanied her brothers and sisters to uh, in their numerous sports activities until she came at age, at which time she was placed in a Catholic institution. Now, for anyone who knows anything about the Kennedy family, you would know that she had some kind of disorder and the family lobotomized her, like they stuck an ice pick through her brain to completely like immobilize her. So, like, right there is your first instance of... Uh, there's something a little amiss with the Special Olympics. There's something really fucked up about this, right? Because it's like, the whole thing started as a tribute to a girl that was not given the treatment she needed and instead lobotomized by one of the most evil families in American history. What started as a small, little-noticed competition in Chicago is now a global movement. It has helped to change society's attitudes toward people with intellectual disabilities. And as John Yang reports, their goal is inclusion far beyond the playing field. The summer of 1968, a nation in turmoil. Protesters marched against the war in Vietnam. Urban riots erupted after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. But amid the tumult, an event the likes of which the world had never seen. An Olympics for children with intellectual disabilities. 
It was July 20th. Eunice Kennedy Shriver spoke during the opening ceremony at Chicago's Soldier Field just six weeks after her brother Robert had been killed. In ancient Rome, the gladiators went into the arena with these words on their lips. Let me win, but if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. Today, many of you will win, but even more important, I know you will be brave. Let us begin the Olympics. Thank you. It's actually like not. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I just want to bring this point from the little bit I've read. But it's interesting how the Special Olympics started from the like sort of terrible origins of infantilizing uh, intellectually disabled people uh, and people with any kind of disability back in the day to where it is now, which is like corporate sponsorships almost infantilize the athletes that are in these Olympics because like. As I don't know if you'll get into it, but like, you know, a lot of the Olympians that play in these games, they don't get integrated into the workforce after they've like won these Not games. They they remain second class citizens in, in a lot of ways. So uh, I it just kind of already that was something I was going to bring up later. And you've already like sort of answered my question. It's in the like the fucking like roots of this of this event. It's literally in the DNA of of the mm-hmm. of the uh you know, sporting events for people with intellectual disability like that history. In 1962, Eunice Kennedy organized an initial summer sports camp, Camp Shriver, which was for 34 children with intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. Super successful. She made it a yearly event. And then the Kennedy Foundation financed various organizations dedicated to the creation of similar sports camps in other cities in the U.S. Uh, These camps were ostensibly aimed at improving participant quality of life. And then they held workshops, you know, to promote physical activity for all persons with an emphasis on those with physical, uh, with intellectual disability. And in 1968, in the city of Chicago, the Kennedy Foundation organized the first Special Olympics International Games. Uh, And it took off. It gained momentum inside the U.S. first. And then, like, national Special Olympics movements started developing all over the world. Today, the Special Olympics boasts 170 countries have developed special olympics programs and participate in the games the special olympics like movement yeah it's like sort of exclusionary by design it applies Mm. the principle of right to participation for all in its sports events but in practice because there's no actual gate to participation in the special olympics coaches will recruit athletes who participate in the games by using their own selection criteria and then you know you have to sort of conform to given expectations already and then some national organizations because there is such a glut of people who want to participate in like national and international games actually have a lottery system to designate those who will compete internationally additional to that the arbitrary selection criteria used by coaches usually pertains to like attitude behavior and emotional competence to make sure that they don't have to babysit athletes too much uh on their trips overseas and stuff like that and the lottery system is like completely random and it's like the ultimate refusal to select on the basis of performance the kennedy connection is also the reason the special olympics have not been sued there was tension around using the name but the international olympic committee gave the special olympics permission in perpetuity following the LA games, probably due to a combination of political pressure and PR blowback, uh, if they had sued the Special Olympics. 
Is it not? Um, I don't know if this is a dumb question, but is it not IOC recognized the Special Olympics? It's just it, given it this is trademark. IOC, it is IOC recognized. Okay. But just because you're IOC recognized doesn't allow you to use the trademark. This is a basically mm. an agreement in perpetuity to use that the word Olympics and its thing. Uh, on the Paralympic side, in 1989, the International Federation organized its first World Games for athletes with an intellectual disability in Sweden. In 1992, games uh, specifically recognized, aimed at people with intellectual impairment was recognized by the IPC and organized in Madrid just after the Paralympic Games. In 1996, uh, athletes with intellectual disability were included for the first time in the Paralympic Games in Atlanta and were given greater role in 2000 uh, until the rules were severely breached. In Sydney in 2000, 10 out of the 12 members of the Spanish basketball team were unmasked as imposters without any intellectual disability, and they went to great lengths to conceal their deception, growing beards and wearing bobble hats off the court, (laughs) uh, and just acting intellect, like, quote-unquote, acting intellectually disabled, way because they weren't. So you can just imagine how that would look in retrospect and during the games themselves. One player felt guilty, blew the whistle, uh, and after they won gold, investigation followed, they were stripped of their medal, and the International Paralympic Committee actually stopped allowing people with intellectual disability into the Paralympic Games uh, until they could figure out a reliable system for verifying intellectual disability, which is like its whole other can of worms. And in 2009, they launched a new system. Uh, allowing uh, Paralympians to be reinstated in time for 2012. The London Olympics were actually quite... Like, it really did put athletes with intellectual disability in the Paralympic center center stage. To this day, those are still, I believe, the most successful Paralympic Games. And yeah, that's that's a whole thing. So that's like your short history. It's fucked up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I, uh, I, I read something about that team... Like they, they they supposedly found out that they were able to do this because like they just had to like score a low IQ test of some kind to to prove it. But then supposedly the test was just like canceled, and they just let the players go without even performing this, like basically doing what they were doing on the court, but in the form of an IQ test. Um, so that's kind of fucked up, and also just like weirdly a huge oversight on the part of the Paralympics, but. I guess also I can't think of a good answer of how, like, what... I will say, like, right off the top, it's very hard to classify intellectual disability. Like, it it really is, like, putting a lot of proclivities and ticks into one big jar. You know what I mean? With any sort of intellectual disability, there's a million ways one or another, like, two people with the same intellectual disability can actually differ from one another both in terms of aptitude, skill, uh, comprehension, critical thinking, like all these things, it, it really does underpin just how poorly our society is capable of like servicing people on a needs, <laughs> on a need by need basis. And like, it's, it's uh, the intensity with which we like try to broadly classify disability. Here's the difference between the Paralympics and the Special Olympics. Uh, the Olympics gathers top athletes from each country for competition. The Paralympics sort of does the same they're both organizations for disabled athletes but they're not connected they have zero connection to each other aside from the name and one record and they recognize each other in the special olympics the athlete must have cognitive cognitive delays and the age minimum is eight years old it's children competing at the same place as adults are competing 
Whereas with the Paralympics, uh, it's mostly young adults between 18 and 30, uh, and the level of competition is elite, whereas in Special Olympics, there's actually no barrier to entry aside from the ones I just described. It's the barriers imposed by participant nations, uh, not by the organization itself. An athlete in the Special Olympic Games isn't expected to train year-round. They're not really getting paid for this, so they might like go swimming once or twice a week and then go to a swim meet at the Special Olympics and then next season decide they want to do volleyball and just practice volleyball and do that. Whereas an athlete training for Paralympics has a much greater financial incentive and they basically have the same training regimen as an Olympic level athlete. Um, And oftentimes actually Paralympians will train alongside uh, Olympic athletes in national training facilities, right? Like Canada's main training facility in I believe Montreal and stuff like that will will train with each other. The Special Olympics believes in using athletic quote using athletics as an avenue to reach an individual person's maximum potential. No one is excluded or left out based on skill. All athletes are welcomed and rewarded for working hard, trying their best and maximizing their potential. A selection for higher level competition such as advancing from a state to national level may occur through a lottery type system. Unquote. Whereas in Paralympic activities, athletes with disabilities are welcome to train and the benefit to physical health is noted, but the emphasis is on like elite level competition, right? Like these are people who should on a good day be able to be competitive, if not have a winning edge against uh, what you would describe as like able-bodied athletes, right? That's a big thing with like the Oscar Pistorius stuff where he was he was trying to get into the regular Olympics because he believed... Mm-hmm. He believed that his uh, disability actually wasn't shouldn't have counted as uh, as like a, a disability that limited him to one game, and it's entirely possible that through the use of prosthetics, um, <laughs> a physically disabled athlete could be faster than a than what you would call an able-bodied one. Which rules actually? You should put those people in the games <laughs> in the regular <laughs> Olympic games. The whole reward thing that you had mentioned is interesting to me because I was reading about like the volunteer uh, system and everything. And like it's funny when you go on Wikipedia, for instance, they quote directly from the website because there's no other um, there's no other resources for this. And it's special. Basically, the line that that caught my eye was special Olympics volunteers are introduced to a lifetime of friendship, friendships and great rewards, which this citation for on Wikipedia goes to the Special Olympics website. I mean, I'm not really like criticizing it here it's just the more the copy that i'm criticizing and that it's just kind of the same pat on the head you get a pat on the head basically for doing this stuff the structure of the respective organizations does differ greatly uh, the special olympics is far more loose in its structure it's a uh, programs in 170 countries 220 programs operate daily it's governed by a governing board of directors whereas the paralympics is run by the international paralympic committee which, you know, is in conjunction with the IOC. And then the country that's host, selected to host the Olympic Games also hosts uh, the Paralympic Games the following week. Mm-hmm. And the policies for athletes are very similar to Olympic athletes. Mandatory random drug testing, you know, a specific thing at the Olympic Village, like all sorts of stuff. So what we're going to get into right now is going to be a little high level, but it's going to be with an emphasis on the Special Olympics because the Paralympics suck, but like... You can make a very compelling argument that they've handled intellectual disability much better than the Special Olympics has. So, I mean, the Special Olympics has had criticism since, like, actually, basically when it started. In 1978, 
writing in the journal, uh, in the journal, quote, education and training of the mentally retarded, unquote, which is like a real, in 40 years, we've come very far. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's been, yeah, I guess it's been 40 because I was, yeah, 78. Yeah. There, someone wrote, the potential problem of the Special Olympics closely parallels their very essence. In an era when legislators and professionals through the passage and enactment of PL 94-142 are proclaiming the merits of integrating the handicapped into society, this was around the same time the Americans with Disabilities Act Mm -hmm. came out. The Olympics stands somewhat symbolically as evidence of the traditionally purported difference between retarded and normal children. This major caution being expressed is for the involvement of mildly handicapped children in these activities, and the above statement must be immediately qualified. Basically, they're saying that children with minor disabilities were being streamed into Special Olympic events, and they highlight that the biggest difference in people with intellectual disability is not always... Like, with severe intellectual disability, it's intellectual function, but the actual, the largest, the most prevalent form of difference, uh, so to speak, is actually motor function. People who have, uh, who have you know, high-level cognitive function being streamed into the Olympic Games are then basically being told that this is all they can ever amount to. Right. Right? Like, they're intellectually, they're being deliberately stymied and sort of, again, it's it's a classification needs-based issue, right? So they're, they're putting everyone into these games, even though there's, like, a, a huge amount of, like, difference between different skills and, like, you know, being... For people's safety, for example, in the Special Olympics, for the softball throw, you have to throw to a spot on the ground and not at a person. Just right. assuming that that people don't have like the cognitive ability to throw a ball to a person because they're all like severely handicapped, which is like absolutely batshit. Like if you have a minor palsy or something like that, right? Like you would be in the same competition as someone with Down syndrome, which is unfair to both mm-hmm. of you, actually. I mean that's a tough question to answer though because it's like do you do you expand the framework so that games are separated by those conditions or by different levels like I almost do understand that the how this could be confusing for anybody to figure out I mean especially me I don't really know a lot about the shit obviously the intention behind it is what's a little bit uh scary the sort of limited framework that people are inserted into when also the intention is to be very open and diverse that that's yeah that's something we should all be concerned with and then the other thing is also the mandate they go into this even more and they talk about how the mandate of the special olympics is actually not focused around sort of being therapeutic or ways to like improve the quality of life for people with intellectual disabilities like the the special olympics unlike the paralympics for example does not focus on skill acquisition uh and does not focus on actual like learned development of skills that would help uh support them in living with an intellectual disability in a society that treats them as differential right like mm-hmm. athletes on ha- uh, on hand at the time this was written this is another journal from 98 no sorry from the year 2000 it's like athletes spent one to two days a week for the past eight months training for the event in which many participants participate in once a year so there's no real like you know there's no real acquired skill development and stuff like that there's no um activity that allows students to approximate the realization of criterion of ultimate functioning more quickly or more efficiently there was there's basically very little skill being taught to these students or to children who participate in the games also children and adults participating in the same games on its face is really fucked up as well mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get into that, but 
In 2002, only two members of the 48 for the Board of Directors of the Special Olympics had developmental disabilities or intellectual disability. Tone of the organization has articulated repeatedly that people with intellectual disability are receiving services, quote-unquote, from those without disability, which can actually lead to those who have the ability to compete at an elite level from making it into Olympic competition on account of you've been streamed into the Special Olympics, um, and that's pretty much, you've received the service, and you're going to continue to receive that service, but again, it's not opening you up to higher levels of athletic achievement if you have the capacity to go there. Yeah, they got that unified sports thing, right, where they, like, integrate, uh, you know, athletes from the the just regular Olympics, I guess, and the Special Olympics. But it, and it's funny; it's it's worded in the same way that you're describing, and but it also just perpetuates exactly what we're kind of getting at here. It just kind of infantilizes these Olympians as like, oh, here's your little opportunity to meet like what you could be if you weren't disabled, and it's almost like a slap in the fucking face when you really think about it. And regular, quote unquote, regular able-bodied Olympians. Yes. Um, if they go to the Special Olympics, they're not there to like scout talent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're yeah. not there to be. They're there to be like, you know, you went fast and to pat you on the back. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean, like it's like there's no, there's no streaming system for actually identifying, identifying people who could use this as a way to sort of emerge from a society that is incredibly hostile to people with intellectual disabilities. Like mm-hmm. even the Unified Olympics thing is incredibly paternalistic. And the paternalistic attitude also trickles down to the volunteer system that they use, because the Special Olympics is largely a volunteer run. And it uses a loose, it's not coded in their guidelines, but like on its face, it uses something called contact theory to break down barriers and educate volunteers around the capacity for achievement for people with intellectual disability. Basically, the idea with any sort of contact theory, which is... Like, I understand contact theory. I also think it's like, you know, when you have two cat, when you have a cat and you bring another cat home and the cats don't like each other. Yes. And you think the solution to making those cats like each other is to throw them in a closet and close the door and let them get it all out. Right. That's basically an argument as to why contact theory doesn't work. Like, it's like you actually can't just rely on contact. There needs to be systems and education and... Uh, an actual process of relationship building in place, um, among other things. And the, the the contact needs to be on equal level. Like, it can't just be, like, you're volunteering to help save these people and stuff like that. But, yeah, basically, like, it relies on this idea that contact volunteers have with people with intellectual disability for the games, the greater the potential of normalizing understandings of people with these disabilities broadly. Study done in 1990 <laughs> found that there's tentative support to the hypothesis that contact to Special Olympics games may not have a significant impact in a positive direction on volunteer perception of people with quote-unquote mental retardation. Um, when contact situations create dependency of a person with, I'm just going to stop mm-hmm. saying that word, with a mental arsler, a reduction in positive perceptions may, it, it just shows up a million times in this article. <laughs> yeah, this is from 1992. Create a dependency of a person with mental R. A reduction positive perceptions may be expected. This emphasizes contact theory requirements, importance of components of equal status, cooperative independence, and opportunity to disprove stereotypes. The study also suggested greater attention paid to how Special Olympics portrays its own participants would make a huge difference because volunteers, by and large, saw their own efforts of volunteering at the Games as 
acts of charity. And the article, mm. the journal says, uh, acts of charity, while commendable, may be, in this case, a substitute for more substantial changes necessary in attitudes or perceptions. The most interesting thing about this, the outcome, was that people with minimal contact experience, people who weren't directly in contact with athletes or weren't heavily in contact with athletes as volunteers, scored higher in a more developed and equitable understanding of those with intellectual disability than those with the most contact experience, pretty significantly, actually. So, you know, that's that's something where it's like you're basically describing Special Olympians as like a subgroup of people with quote-unquote mental arsler, which is worthy of attention, right? So it's not even an argument against contact theory. It's an argument against how the game set up contact, which, I mean, you see this in actually trickle down to lots of things. It trickles, it's actually a very large function of how liberal society keeps people separated through contact theory that like, atomizes and deliberately creates hostile relationships rather than uh, an open playing field for communication stuff like that's basically like how the cia won the tumblr wars right (laughs) yeah yeah the cia meme guy but like you mentioned the board of directors right earlier um yes like the fact that there's people with disabilities are not widely represented on the special olympics board of directors uh only from what i'm reading here too only two members have disabilities that's like that alone encapsulates the whole just kind of like neoliberal categorization uh you know corporate charity vibe that you just get from the special olympics barely having to read about it like it's perpetuated by the top-down mentality of like yeah disabled people like from the kindness of their heart helping these people who are in their eyes um you know not specifically but in a general corporate copy like mandate where it feels like they're categorizing them as subhuman yeah that's that's basically it you know i mean like and that's and you see this trickle down into all levels of our education system in high school i volunteered with because my school had a a stream for kids with intellectual disabilities and you could volunteer with it uh and that created like massive divisions between like the into the intellectually disabled population the regular population it was like mm-hmm. a very good like it was like white girl going to africa type shit and like all of this by the way was affirmed in later studies where it was found that like a person portrayed in special olympic activities was perceived to be less competent than the same person portrayed in matched integrated community activities, so non-Special Olympics, uh, and more integrated activities that were, by mm-hmm. and large, for able-bodied people or only had able-bodied attendance. And then high school students uh, who volunteered the Special Olympics in 1999 were found to not have a change in their attitudes towards persons with severe mm-hmm. disabilities because of their participation. Indeed, they had more negative attitudes towards students wow. with severe intellectual disability than non-disabled high school students involved in integrated service learning activities. So basically, again, like what you're doing is you're creating a separate society for people mm. with intellectual disabilities rather than finding ways to integrate them into able-bodied, right? Like that really is the the core argument being made around the Special Olympics here. And something that I actually deeply agree with, you know what I mean? Like even if you had you know, perhaps even like an intellectually disabled stream at a regular integrated sports event or something like that. It would probably be, or even like intramural or exhibition games in which people were were more integrated in terms of players and stuff like that, you would actually have a better societal outcome, if not, although definitely not a better competitive outcome. 
Uh, which also goes back to the question of, like, what does the Special Olympics there for, right? The Paralympics are for competitive outcomes. There's a million other sports programs that you could integrate because they don't have that level of, like, competitive achievement nor the monetary reward as the Special Olympics purports not to have. So what purpose do the Special Olympics actually serve? I mean, I hope I, I would hope from what you were going to tell me that it would, like, show, like, a, a, an emphasis on cultural accessibility on top of just, like, you know, like, athletic accessibility and, like, basically, like, allowing, like, coalitional collaborative like like make it like an actual participatory thing from the top down but just the way it's structurally represented uh, the way it's structured stops it from being able to do that like i i agree with you too that maybe they should just integrate both into each other into some and not have like these two separate olympics basically which is why everybody everybody always makes the joke too like it's terrible that when the special olympics come on you you sort of you stop watching the olympics because it always comes on afterwards maybe if there was within the framework within the structure within the organizational structure of the the special olympics there was cultural accessibility for disabled people then maybe it would be able to do what it says it's doing it's mandated to do Today, millions of athletes train and compete in more than 100,000 events each year in some 170 nations. Shriver died in 2009. Her son, Tim, is now Special Olympics chairman. He recalls summers at Camp Shriver, a forerunner to Special Olympics. In the early 1960s, the family opened their Maryland home to special needs kids. I remember the buses arriving, school buses, yellow school buses. They'd come from institutions I didn't know where they were coming from. We all would salute the flag and sing the national anthem together in a circle. I remember my backyard becoming an amusement park. You know, ponies arrived for pony rides and coaches arrived to coach kickball games. I remember playing with campers. I mostly remember that it was fun. Even Barack Obama, he once described his own bowling skills as akin to participants in the Special Olympics. Oh my god. <laughs> if you remember this. No, I don't remember this. That's, uh, wow. And like, since 1973, there's you can no longer deny, in the US, you can no longer deny benefits of programs solely on the basis of handicap. I believe that's the Americans with Disabilities mm. Act. I might be wrong. Uh, they they only in these journals they only describe it as PL nine four one four two which I should have looked up what that was but like the the solution to that should have been increasing numbers of people with mild again like these things have to be graded as well right mild intellectual disability to become active participants in quote unquote regular athletic programs uh, as quoted in the article and like the idea of segregation mm. for people with intellectual disabilities is actually like horrifyingly limiting in terms of like integrating people and and creating normative relationships with them in society and actually creating broader like because this stuff trickles down to everything from like how we define architecture to building standards to the way our like education classroom systems are set up like those things all have an effect based on how visible and integrated people with intellectual disability are in society. Whereas like the Special Olympics specifically exists to segregate those people into their own like deeply, deeply issues heavy stream that completely cuts them off from from any hope of like participating in integrated events. It's well intended, don't get me wrong. Well, I don't think it's well intended because it's the Kennedys, but like on its face it's well intended. But the stereotype is being reinforced that uh, intellectually disabled person must be evaluated in terms of possible effects on peer relationship and misconceptions, which may already be fostered in the public's understanding of intellectual disability, right? 
this journal also mentions the diciness that comes with advertisers supporting high-profile campaigns for intellectually disabled children, bringing them front and center into these campaigns, uh, which is a great way that very broadly and immediately like limits their sense and capacity for achievement compared to able, quote-unquote, able-minded people before they've even left the gate in like a world that's hostile to them. The the Special Olympics, yeah, they're basically a failure, uh, an outcome of a failure to understand and tune society to make it work for everyone, and it's a one size fits all approach to a very complex relationship between people with uh, intellectual disability and the rest of society, right? For most people, again, like the sticking point in a majority, a vast majority of intellectual disability, is motor function above all else. Integrated sport is actually very possible for many of these articles suggest i'm not an expert so i don't know uh, integrated sport is actually very possible for a majority of people with intellectual disability you know what i mean like like and oftentimes we tend to grade intellectual disability on its sort of furthest end rather than what it actually is right a person with a mild intellectual disability will you know has a more of a chance to be streamed into a service program for people with severe intellectual disability because uh, ostensibly Mm. that program supports both at once but on a needs basis it will always cater to the person with severe intellectual disability first which isn't a bad thing but it does again uh, it leaves child behind uh it's also worth mentioning the special olympics is a hundred million dollar organization funded by the Kennedy Foundation and a mountain of advertising dollars. They have a monetary incentive to continue this because governments will not fill those roles. Yeah, it's considered the goal of advocates and many athletes who share these criticisms of the Special Olympics to achieve, like, athletic, to use this as a way to stream athletic athletes into participation in the Paralympics. Because the Paralympics, uh, again, Olympics bad, but, like, the Paralympics... Like, their large goal is to, like, create a process of destigmatization for these athletes, right? They're playing in international events. Uh, they're doing a play at being a champion. It's it's still a separate stream, but you are also, you know, on your face, the best at what you do. You know what I mean? It's not mm. volunteer run. It's actually very tightly controlled and organized, oftentimes to its detriment. But, again, like, we're we're just mincing words here. It's better than the Special Olympics, but the bar is quite low. There's also the infantilization, right? On top of paternalism, like it's the every, did you know this? Every single participant in the Special Olympics gets a medal and a hug. People and Pat, that's the pat on the head that we were going to get to. Let me read you a letter sent to the, uh, sent to the Special Olympic Games. Uh, my name is Jacob Dickinson. I'm 13 years old and I live here in North Haven, Connecticut. I got to work at the 1995 Special Olympics World Games. When the games finally started, I helped out at different events. I worked at track and field. I carried athletes' warm-up clothes and baskets from starting line to finish line. I kicked a ball around with a soccer team from Barbados to help them warm up before a game. I became good, made new friends. I became good pals with a volunteer from Australia. I met athletes. I talked about their sports. On the last day of the games, I wasn't too happy. All of my fun was over. I went to the closing ceremony and saw all my new friends one last time. We said goodbye. We promised to write one write to one another. It's like, and this is the sort of propaganda the Special Olympics puts out around its volunteer programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, these, this is a 13-year-old volunteer now has this like incredibly weird complex around people with intellectual disability that they will likely carry with them for life. 
the Special Olympics also treat adults and children the same way, right? Both discrediting both and creating this like enormous stigma of like this idea that like an adult with intellectual disability will always will have the same sort of function as a child with intellectual disability, that there's no room for growth or change, which is so fucked up. And the rules here are not the same is integrated settings because everyone wins. I'm actually not a fan. Like I am a communist but i'm not a fan of everyone wins because that's literally not how this works it's just that you shouldn't be punished for losing yeah like basically and this is a really interesting argument is that like it denies part the special olympics denies uh participants the dignity of risk you know i mean the dignity of of losing or being able to lose like they're they're here's a quote It keeps people with developmental disabilities from experiencing the normal taking of risks in life, which is necessary for normal human growth and development. Learning how to accept and behave in losing circumstances is extremely helpful for an individual. They set up an artificial environment, which the rules are not the same as integrated settings, which actually quite literally handicap skill, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Social development, stuff like that. Uh, on top of that, they, they Special Olympics also foster the us against them attitude with them being the people with disabilities. And, you know, the fact that they are so segregated is a whole other thing. And this is my, my favorite one, because we talk about the huggers. The huggers are a volunteer <laughs> position at the Special Olympics. Oh, my God. It's incredibly infantilizing. I'm just going to ne- read this quote. And neoliberal bullshit, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, we will we will go there, too. Quote, there's also the problem of huggers. For example, a newspaper article titled Huggers Ready for, Spe- for Winter Special Olympics was noted that huggers are special parts of the special olympic programs according to blah 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 a new york times article had a person of a, a picture of a person being hugged with the caption the second place winner in the 3000 meter run, run of the ukrainian team got a hug from rose marie spadafor who had come from insomnia connecticut to watch the games the fresno bee quoted two special olympic directors we get paid says carolyn we get paid in all the hugs and smiles we can get we're big huggers, says her husband. The kids love it, and so do we. People with developmental disabilities often have difficulties engaging in appropriate social behavior. So here you have like athletes being hugged by complete strangers, creating a dilemma of teaching inappropriate social behavior where participants are encouraged to hug strangers. And this is especially fucked up if participants then generalize this behavior to other settings and situations. Also, it's just the most infantilizing shit you can think of. You know what I mean? Like, here's your medal. Here's your hug. Thanks for coming by. Like, President George W. Bush, uh, in response to uh, to Barack Obama's um, uh, Special Olympics uh, quote, said, like, I remember when I was governor of the great state of Texas, I was a hugger. That was during the Special Olympic Games. If you've never been a hugger, I strongly advise you to be one. It means you stand at the end of a finish line of a race and you hug the people coming across the line. It meant a lot to me as a hugger. Oh yeah, in advertising, the Special Olympics are paid for branding, but the companies are asked for no commitment in regard to hiring individuals with intellectual disability. Like, granted, no one should have to work, but we do live under capitalism. So it speaks to, like, the sponsors have zero incentive to uh, hire people with intellectual disability at all. Like, it just, it speaks to, like, a total lack of larger opportunities and lifestyle outcomes and, like, reinforces and diminishes that uh, these people have no capacity to even make choice for themselves if the choice, because the choices just simply aren't there. And then on top of that, like, you've got the media representation, right? Like, a Pittsburgh press had a headline, had a front page article with a person with the 
of a picture being hugged with the caption being special hug. You know, the Syracuse Herald American said it was difficult deciding where the special ends and the Olympic begins. In the same paper, the editorial said special Olympics volunteers learn that the mentally retarded are great kids. A headline in the Eugene Register Guard stated athletes win more than medals with a picture of an athlete being hugged after participating. In the Oakland Tribune, uh, there was an article, Special mm-hmm. Olympics athletes win smiles. Races belong to not so swift, not so strong. Yeah, so it, it, the, the the media representation of this, as you mentioned at the beginning, Aton, just completely yeah. devalues these people, right? Like, it completely disenfranchises them. It's, uh, I mean, it's kind of an example of also manufacturing consent. Like, the criticism section on the Wikipedia page for the Special Olympics is very, very small. And references like two journals, which you probably read as well. And it just kind of is freaking me out a little bit thinking about how like, yeah, this stuff is like so uh, buried. These kinds of like criticisms of the Special Olympics are very much like buried Uh, in the mainstream. It's very funny. I did not actually, this was one of the first times I did not actually look at the the Wikipedia Mm -hmm. article for this. I should have done that because it probably would have made my research a bit easier in terms of going down the uh, rabbit hole. In the 2012 Paralympic coverage uh, in the UK, Channel 4 produced some engaging and challenging TV trailers for Rio 2016 based on the theme, Where the Superhumans? However, to represent elite athletes who clearly had intellectual disabilities remained a challenge because oftentimes intellectual disability is not visible. So what did they do? no. They resolved it by including athletes with Down syndrome. While this solved the issue in some way, it did not... Fucked up decision to make in a boardroom. (laughs) I'm sorry to cut you off. But, like, that was a discussion. (laughs) Yes. It gets worse. It gets worse. Okay. (laughs) While this solved the issue in some way, it did not truly solve it. As for the reasons explained earlier in this paper, no athlete with Down syndrome met the performance standards required to compete at the Rio Paralympics. Oh my god. And the sport they were depicted in was boxing, a sport in which para-athletes with intellectual disabilities do not compete. (laughs) That's so fucked up. So, you know, first they were like, we have to put intellectually disabled people in here. We can't just show someone with a palsy or something, because these mooks watching TV won't get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Find the kid with Down syndrome. Then yeah, like, them do bo- yeah, like there was a series of decisions made, right? It just shows the categorization and fucked up like view of everybody who's involved, including the sponsors who have to like who are using this, by the way. I mean, we all know this, but like the Bill Gates Foundation and every fucking philanthropist and company has to have like a charity arm of some kind. And it just that that's just like a microcosm of the attitudes that these people fucking have towards the charities they're supposed to believe in. So, like, ultimately what this does, it promotes something called handicapism, the theory that promote equal and unjust treatment of people because of apparent or assumed physical or mental disability. Because Special Olympics were designed to serve only people with disability, they focus the attention of the public on disability rather than the person. Something the Paralympics uh, do, but uh, again, very differently, but, but especially through the circumstances of training and stuff, like integrated sports setting for training are super key. And the Special Olympics in particular perpetuate the belief that there are two classes of people, like normal and disabled and that people with disability need a recreation program different from that provided to people without disability. You can make a very compelling argument that 
if everything leading up to that was integrated, you could probably get away with the Special Olympics. That's a lot of the ways the Paralympics have skirted similar criticism, although they do have their own. In the two movements, Special Olympics and Paralympics have different statuses in each country. Uh, for example, in France, the Special Olympics are like basically non-existent, and the Paralympics are huge. The Paralympics are, are very well respected, very well taken care of on the structural level in France and at the committee level. Lots of people have argued for intellectual disability inclusion into the Paralympics, which has happened slowly, but interestingly enough, has also been met with a lot of resistance from Paralympic athletes who are often reactionary, not wanting to compete or have the uh, air of physical disability taken away from them by people considered able-bodied. Um, which is actually like a very, like they generally don't compete in the same events, but it like, to them it dilutes the whole focus of the event in totality, which is, I, I like, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting take. I don't, like, I have no right to have an opinion on it, really. I don't know where I stand on that, but I would be remiss not to mention that there is pushback from many Paralympic athletes about the inclusion of people with intellectual disability in the Paralympics. I'm just going to finish this by reading from this journal. Promotion of the Paralympics, both of athletes who in their normative behavior and sporting achievements show troubling closeness to able-bodied athletes and of athletes forever called kids who are rewarded for their participation by a hug during Special Olympics events. Uh, tend to show very different underlying conceptions of sport for people with intellectual disabilities, whereas the Paralympics proposes a serious form of sport that categorizes and hierarchizes, selecting and ordering bodies and minds according to the logic of sportivization. The Special Olympics proposes to be a pretend, quote-unquote, and playful form of sport, which is a pretext for more general participation and uplift, the model having been inherited from the Kennedy family framework and kept functioning along the same lines. Um, and so my last point here, the Special Olympics does not actually lead to youth retention in sport. A 2020 Canadian study found that recruitment may be facilitated by others and access to local sport programming. Retention for people with intellectual disabilities in sports has more to do with athletic motivation, general socialization, and the resources provided that would allow them to remain involved. So that's like your your part one of your Paralympics stuff. We're going to go to ad break now. The second part is much shorter, but no less fucked up. These days, we are completely bombarded with video content, whether it's a series, movies, or documentaries about, I don't know, Carol Baskin and the Tiger King. That's the best documentary there is, right, guys? Screenworthy tries to cut through all this noise and talk about what it all means from a cultural standpoint and how it affects the future of filmmaking. Hosts Kyle Badanis and the Smart Alecky Mine Refinery creative team talk to content creators and filmmakers about the state of the industry while diving deep into noteworthy projects that arrive on your screen. Screenworthy drops on the Mine Refinery podcast channel wherever you get your podcasts. Now, the second part of the show is dedicated specifically to classification, um, and it took all my energy to not include the NFL and other sports organizations in the classification part of this. We can The NFL deserves its own episode, to be honest, but like this is very specifically around Paralympic and Special Olympic classification, which is different than what other people use and like it's hard it's hard because like a lot of these clear classification systems are broad but applied very differently to each um league or institution or sporting body this is very interesting when the paralympics opened up games to athletes with intellectual disability again most news sources reported incorrectly that they use the who criteria for intellectual disability which is both rigorous and very problematic 
This is the same criteria used by the Special Olympics. And we'll get into how they don't use this, but on its face, they do. It's just like it takes 10 minutes of reporting to figure out or research to figure out how they don't, right? But this is the criteria. An IQ below 75, impairment in adaptive functioning, for example, social, domestic, and communication skills, and the disability must have occurred, occurred before the age of 18. Those are your three WHO criteria for intellectual disability. Professor Jan Burns, who I did read Jan Burns' entire paper on this uh, and have not used it once because it was basically propaganda for his position with uh, INS, which is one of the governing bodies for sports with people with intellectual disability, uh, added, to be eligible for selection, each athlete has undergone a strict primary eligibility check together with a sports-specific classification assessment. The project team which developed this process recently won a 2012 Podium Award for their contribution to scientific research. And now, Jan Burns, his research and framing of people with intellectual disability in the Paralympics uh, is actually not bad. You know, they have their own events, etc., etc., but also, like, he's clearly getting a paycheck from the Paralympic Games. He is he is being paid by them, or by Inus, so it's like, you know, take everything he says with a grain of sort. He, sort, uh, salt. He clearly has a horse in this race. Um, it should be mentioned here that if you don't already know, IQ testing is extremely racist, yep. used to disenfranchise millions on the basis of intelligence, incapable of taking into account social, economic, or cultural difference. They were a key way that marginalized communities were uh, excluded using quote-unquote empirical and scientific data, as seen in calipers, skull shapes, uh, the bell curve, you know, all sorts of shit. Um, supporters of eugenic ideologies, of which Canada had a full-on eugenics program for decades, by the way, mm -hmm. used IQ tests to identify and sterilize idiots, imbeciles, and the feeble-minded. These were people also who eugenicists argued threatened to dilute the white Anglo-Saxon genetic stock of America. The uh, system developed by the WHO and, again, adopted, quote-unquote, by the Special and Paralympics is less inclusive, less developed, and less articulate than something like the Lexi system used for athletes with a physical handicap, where you just have, like, a drawing of a person, and it has, like, a, a blue or a green, yellow, or red thing at certain body parts that tells you where their disability is, which is used primarily in broadcast to help identify people who are like, well, why is the... Why is the guy with one leg running against the guy with two legs? And then you can look at the Lexi chart and see, oh, the guy with two legs who doesn't look like he has a disability actually has something wrong with his back, right? Because that's the part that's mm. color-coded. It's an easier way to like understand understand visual and non-visual dis uh, physical disability. There is nothing like that in the Special Olympics or Paralympics. Um, there are some sports in which visually impaired athletes compete with their physically disabled counterparts, like sailing, skiing... Uh, and equestrianism and uh some things like athletics and swimming um imply a general classification system for visually impaired people and a functional classification system for the remaining participants i actually a really good friend of mine in uh toronto was a paralympic um runner actually which was uh it was very interesting hanging out with him and stuff like that because he was blind like he had two percent vision in his left eye and his right eye just wasn't there and we would just, like, hang out a bunch, um, you know, smoke weed and drive around. Um, and he would give me war stories from the from the Olympics and stuff like that, which apparently the 
Apparently, the festivities do not end once the able-bodied athletes leave the Olympic Village. Apparently, the the Paralympic Village gets extremely turned up. Uh, but yeah, like it's it's interesting because like the only place he could find a job after being an Olympian was that restaurant that only has blind servers. Oh, uh, my friend uh, was a server there for a, like or like a server assistant or bar uh, manager there for a bit. Um, what was it called Noir? Uh, noir. Oh, Noir. Yeah. So here are the steps to classification for the Paralympics. Step one, if athlete wants to enter Paralympic sport, they need to submit an eligibility application to INIS. Uh, The application should prove the diagnosis of intellectual impairment, i.e. IQ measures. Step two, Mm. an on-site test will take place in which they will focus on the assessment of cognitive domain factors that are relevant to the particular sport in order to assess the sports intelligence of the athlete. Step three, during competition, assessment of performance may complete the athlete's assessment. Inconsistencies between on-site testing and performance observation during competition can lead to protest against the allocation of the athlete in a certain sport class. They fit well into the classification in athletes with physical disabilities, but there are already problems with these procedures, right? Uh, like, because these procedures are actually reverse engineered, and this is the ways that they don't meet the WHO criteria which is a lot simpler than what this is. These are reverse engineered from uh, classification of athletes for physical disabilities, medical, functional, and observational criteria. That is very Mm. different than intellectual disability, which again, as we mentioned earlier, is so fucking broad. So IQ is used as a measure of intellectual disability, but IQ in general and testing for IQ is so arbitrary. Like IQ actually tells you very little ultimately, and this has been argued in the scientific community now for decades. Secondly, IQ is not related to sport-specific intelligence, right? When it comes to table tennis, some on the autistic spectrum have no disability whatsoever. They're equally good as any able-bodied, able-minded player at the Olympics, per se, uh, as an example. And even though there are studies showing that intellectually disabled athletes have lower performance than able-bodied athletes in track and field, for example, this is not necessarily the case for other sports. Thirdly, the criterion of IQ presupposes that IQ, this is a big one, is stable and does not change with age. It goes back to this idea that people with intellectual disabilities are the same from in the Special Olympics, not the Paralympics. Uh, now we're talking about the Paralympics, but like it reinforces this idea that the Special Olympics presents that, that eight-year-olds and you know 48-year-olds with intellectual disability are graded on the same line. Uh, studies do not agree on whether or not IQ changes increases or decreases with respect to the assessment of low intellectual ability uh people are not static even if they have intellectual disability what is crucial for eligibility is objective proof that the athlete is really quote-unquote disabled enough to be allowed to compete in a certain paralympic event while proving physical disability is relatively easier and clearer the assessment of intellectual disability is just incredibly difficult it's so hard because none of our systems have been put in place to identify this are actually as functional as we would want to believe they are they i mean they sound like they perpetuate what's going on with like the general problem of this stuff they 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 are designed with the uh idea that you know somebody with intellectual disabilities has no ability to grow and learn like anybody else like an, like a like a the like an abled person i guess which as you said like studies are inconclusive about that and that makes sense because mental or sorry intellectual disability is also not a static thing and isn't something that you can just like 
black and white categorized, which what makes the uh, this all fucked up in a general sense. Again, like, you know, we are grading people with, uh, I guess autism is different because the rhetoric around autism has changed significantly in the last couple of years. Um, but like for a while, you're grading people with um, mild to severe autism the same way, right? In terms of their mm -hmm. functionality. And like, what happens when someone with severe autism is given uh, more opportunities to develop coping mechanisms and methods to like, you know, work alongside you know, integrated sport. Like, it's like none of this makes any fucking sense in the slightest. So yeah, just proving that people are disabled enough is incredibly weird. There's also the tendency of an athlete to accentuate uh, his or her disability in order to achieve a certain classification to maximize the chances of victory, right? Like, people in the Paralympics are there to win. They are elite athletes. P athletes with an intellectual disability, the categories are actually not subdivided. So it's just a matter of being classified as an athlete with or without a disability, which, again, like, creates some really fucky situations. Because that way you have someone with severe intellectual handicap competing with someone with a mild intellectual handicap. The criteria used by the INAS is, to, is fundamentally broken as well. Like, no clinical judgment is required. This, again, the WHO criteria usually requires clinical judgment. No clinical judgment is required to assess whether or not the score achieved reflects the actual the athlete's actual intelligence functioning, and there's no way of knowing that the IQ test score has been manipulated or is otherwise not reflected or not telling the whole story of an athlete's intellectual functioning. The, uh, the WHO mechanism does not have a cutoff score. That's also key, whereas the INAS system does have a cutoff score, and it's very strict, and there's no exercise of clinical judgment to interpret it as there is under the WHO and AAIDD criteria. So that means qualitative factors such as environmental issues, fatigue, diagnosis of uh, autism, certain types of medication which may cause an IQ score to be artificially low, are not taken under account under the INAS criteria. So an athlete with good intellectual functioning could slip through the net, or an athlete with low intellectual functioning could actually be excluded. Um in under the WHO criteria, potential IQ score influencers would be picked up and factored into the assessment by the diagnosing clinician. The exercise of clinical judgment is obviously super important because IQ tests are broken and racist, right? And they're, the way that they fixed it is not by abolishing IQ, but to add more clinical judgment into the system of IQ testing, which, again, it's still broken because the clinical judge is also being influenced by their own um, environmental factors, but it's like slightly better mm. um and that margin of error you know that the the clinician like uh, exercises needs to be taken into account and the inas iq cutoff score 75 whereas cutoffs approximately 69 70 are referenced by the who and aaidd this discrepancy is actually off a basic mathematical error on the part of inas they claim that they use a cutoff score of 75 because that's two standard deviations below the mean of 100 but they fucked up because two standard deviations between the mean of 100 is 70, not 75. And they've been told <laughs> about this mathematical problem, the fact that they can't do basic math, uh, and just didn't fix it. They just had no response to? No, they said we acknowledge it, but we're not going to fix it. <laughs> um, That's very suspect. <laughs> here's the example provided, right? Assume an athlete has an IQ score of 75. That athlete is going to satisfy the INAS intellectual functioning criteria, but would not satisfy the international standards set by the WHO unless in special circumstances 
or clinical judgment determined otherwise. Even athletes with an IQ score of less than 69 do not necessarily nice do not necessarily <laughs> satisfy the WHO intellectual functioning criteria as that depends on the additional assessment of a diagnosing clinician to interpret the IQ score. That's just so bizarre. Like that, I said it's suspect because I just don't understand what the intention is of like being reductive in an IQ test, which is supposed to like put our intelligence into some kind of quantifiable test, right? Like, wouldn't that be the main goal of trying to make it work? But it seems like uh, the Special Olympics doesn't even care in that. I don't know. This is just... I. I'm just shocked by how fucked up this all is. Like, it just also as an extension of this, like, you know, complete ignorance of like making actual infrastructural change for disabled people and actually integrating them into society. It just like continuously perpetuate, yeah, this like othering that we we keep referencing over and over again throughout the um, throughout the episode. We should have a jamboree down at Soldier Field, just like that, and we can show everybody that these children have abilities. That was the spark of it. Burke took her proposal to Shriver. She said, this is not big enough. You can't have just a citywide track meet. It has to be a large track meet for everybody. Invite everybody around the country. But to have this little jewel start to have its heart beat in Soldier Field to come to fruition um, about a vulnerable society was under the radar. Now, the other thing here is there. there's also no self-identification mechanism, and since there's no classification, the group rules actually discriminate against the most disabled since they will be the most disadvantaged since they're competing with people with like mild intellectual disability. Um, this also means that the most disabled will be gradually excluded from the possibility of Paralympic selection in stuff like qualifiers and training camps and stuff like that. And this, like, specifically contradicts the IPC's stated claim to enable para-athletes to achieve sporting excellence and and inspire and excite the world <laughs> and stuff like that, right? So it's like, that alone is very fucked up. Like, the fact that their refusal to, like, categorize on top of refusing to actually have the proper WHO uh, classification system in place... Um, there's no reason why they've ever spoken about why they don't subclassify uh, uh, the systems, but I will answer that for you right now. It's a money thing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you subclassify the systems, then you have to have more events, which cost more money, and that's money you don't want to spend to actually achieve the mandate of what your organization purportedly sets out to do. Um, right, and it's already costing them money to categorize these people into a Special Olympics anyways. So it's just like, how far are they even willing to go? And it's clear, not very far. <laughs> so the solution, again, like the solution is almost contradictory. It might be more rigorous and selective criteria because restrictive criteria allows higher functioning athletes who believe they're only allowed to compete in the Paralympic Games to compete against uh, more intensely intellectually disabled athletes, right? Mm -hmm. Um it's also an issue with, again, it goes back to this idea of the Special Olympics streaming people with mild intellectual disability into, like, into systems that ostensibly they should not be in. They mm -hmm. should be able to perform in more integrated sports events, but aren't given the opportunity to. It's the opposite of intersectionality when you really, when you really look into it. Yeah, and like the INAS has been, or INS has been repeatedly informed of errors associated with criteria. Sid Lee and intellectually disabled athletes 
athlete and his parents have pleaded with the INAS to correct its criteria for six years without success. A formal complaint was sent to them in 2016, which they declined to act. And then they referred the, um, this was sent to the IPC, which then, yeah, the IPC did nothing and referred the matter back to INAS. INAS acknowledged the complaint and said, this was their statement. Since the criteria was revised and agreed in the early 2000s, we have received just one formal complaint, which was investigated and answered by INAS and by the International Paralympic Committee. And that was basically their statement. I don't know what the solution is, right? Like, categorization might be the ultimate solution. I know there's, like, issues with people slipping through the cracks when they blend categories and stuff. But, like, anything's better than the system that currently exists. You know what I mean? I mean, like, there's a th- uh, there's a theory called the social mode of disability, right? It proposes right. basically that, like, disability is, like, not something that like is like a static thing within us, but it's produced when we come into contact with something that isn't prepared for that disability. And like that, yeah. So the the structure of the special Olympics is to like do the opposite of that. From what I'm understanding, it's to propose that disability is something fixed. It's a fixed condition. It's a static thing that has to be figured out by the special Olympics and then they can facilitate it as charity as opposed to, yeah, doing what I mean, like, I, I don't know if you were going to get into this in the conclusion, but obviously a lot of the positive um, reporting and positive stories around the Special Olympics is that, you know, certain athletes gain a lot of like social skills they never got before. And like they get to participate in things they would never get to before. But as we're getting like as we're presenting it sort of ends there and there's no it's very cynical also in another sense right it sort of doesn't see any future like for these people other than to be in this categorical hell of like and this is a controversy across all of sports right in terms of like what qualifies as doping or an unfair advantage um for example like in running there's the nike shoe that made people two to five percent faster or whatever which is a huge advantage in a sport that's decided by oftentimes thousands of seconds Mm -hmm. um in the paralympics for people with physical disabilities there's the oscar pistorius thing you know does he have magic legs you know i mean like his his legs that were engineered by a company out of iceland with like carbon fiber flexible carbon fiber plates uh to give him the highest competitive advantage is that like considered a form of doping right i mean the special olympics and paralympics for id are like so specific though because they are far more they have far more reaching implications to like the broader world of how people with intellectual disability are treated you know what i mean that's the part that like fucks me up the most is like this is probably the highest profile event both of these are the highest profile events for people with intellectual disability and they are completely misrepresenting everything about from their classification system to the way they portray people are just uh, entirely misrepresentative of people with intellectual disability, right? Like that's ultimately the harm that they cause is exactly that. And there's like no other mode out of it. Yeah. It's, it's like the, the structure is static as well and doesn't have any, you know, place to be flexible and to be like progressive in any way, which is weird with the mandate of this whole thing. And the Paralympics sh- cut out people with intellectual disability for like 10 years. And then when they brought it back, they just brought it back under a more fucky version of the old system. Like it's entirely 
an incoherent process that's like trying to make people happy without actually wanting to address the root causes of why you know ringers and doping keeps happening the way that it does right it's weird to describe like pretending to be intellectually disabled as doping but it i guess in like a big way it is in this case which is what they are supposed to be offering these athletes is something that they have been missing in their lives right like that's they're supposed to be facilitating that on like an even playing field that replicates the structure of the regular Olympics, but it's it as we were saying, it's not really like that at all. But yeah, that's that's the end of our first season, a uh, second season. Wow, it's been a long yeah. episode. Um, but it was a good one. Um, yeah, I'm going to give our shout outs to the regular crew. Thank you, Aton, for being an amazing co-host on this. No problem. Thank you, Kyle, and the folks at the Mind Refinery for being on this. Thank you to all our guests. You know. Jules Boykoff, Gigi, uh, Tony, um, uh, uh, Southpaw Sports. Sports uh, yeah. who's, uh, why do I keep forgetting your actual name? Um, I'm sure we had more guests who I'm forgetting. Uh, and Sean Woodley and Sean Woodley. Uh, Dun- Duncan from uh, Alberta um, Progress. Advantage. Yes. Advan- Advantage. yes. Uh, thank you all of you for being amazing guests on this show. Um and uh, we'll be back. We're we're going to try and do another 10 episodes before the end of the year and maintain our 30 episode a year uh, goal. Um, and uh, I just got a message asking to do a bonus episode to start the season with, which I'm very interested in. But we'll talk about okay. that after this is done. So Hell you're yeah. actually doing this like memento style. When you listen <laughs> to this, you can go back and know that our first episode was actually decided after our last episode you know dun 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 any shout outs you want to do Aton? uh no you i think you got most of them um shout out to everybody also who's been supporting us online that's been uh oh andre really fun. andre harbinger oh yeah i right andre and the whole harbinger team except, uh, obviously except christo Evales. fuck him okay <laughs> um but uh yeah i mean actually this is going to be a pretty meaty season so it's a little bit meatier than last one uh, a few more two-parters and and yeah, we just got a little bit deep with it, so I'm excited. I'm excited to show what we've been working on, Abdul, to everybody. Hell yeah. Take it easy, everyone. Hope you have a great couple of months. 